something that I think about a lot is where is this deconstruction, postmodernism, rip it all down, tear down all the systems, where is this going? So people are deconstructing from religion for totally valid reasons, but the problem is that these myths are carrying helpful tools for society, right? Rituals, story, moral education, service, spiritual community, transcendence, um, even just the, the tool of imagining a God, imagining something perfect and working towards it calendars, sermons, all this stuff. And every time a new secular community pops up and tries to do all that good stuff without the myth, it doesn't last. There's nothing holding these people together. You need myths to do that. Um, so this generation, so the generation that's deconstructing is usually going to be fine, but the generation after is in trouble because if we are wired for cults and for religion and for myths and for the transcendent and there's no religion, what fills in that gap can be worse. So especially in this case, materialism or political religions. Welcome everybody to another episode. Uh, my guest today is Britt Hartley and she was with Mormon Discussions and she did the Almost Awakened podcast with Bill Real. And I'm actually, you've gone and you're, you're spending more time on your no-nonsense spirituality, I think, which is mm -hmm. a coaching business that you have, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I guess I'll just let you also fill in the blanks there wherever I missed. <laughs> Okay, so my name is Britt Hartley. I'm a spiritual director. So I do have a master's degree in theology, and then I did a two-year program on spiritual direction. And the focus of my kind of business and my, my coaching business now is really the question that you start with in this podcast, which is where will you go? So the most, most of the people that I see um, either you know, as a client or people who follow me on TikTok are people who have destructed and then get to the spot where it's like, okay, what next? And I really love that period of what next, because there's a lot of kind of Mormons doing deconstruction. There's a lot of Mormons who are deconstruction coaches, um, but the what next how do I get, how do I rebuild into my life things that were good for me from religion um, while also avoiding all of the toxicity? And you also have a lot of, you know, truth claim allergies. That's the place where I really like to hang out. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to write that down. Truth claim allergies. I definitely yes. suffer from that. So. Most Mormons have truth <laughs> claim allergies, which is why compared to other religions, we don't religion hop after leaving Mormonism as much as um, someone who would be in like mainline Christianity. Uh, because when, because our religion is younger, um, we just know more about Joseph Smith than, you know, a Christian would know about historical Jesus. And so we get to kind of peek behind the curtain. We see how scripture gets made. We see how myths get formed. We see how prophets uh, and successions come about. And once you kind of really peek behind that curtain and see all that, it can give you kind of an allergy to truth claims in the future. And this is where I see a lot of Mormons get stuck 
is, uh, you know, you have this truth claim allergy, but you also um, need tools. Like, how do I live my life? How do I teach my kids morality? How do I deal with death? Um, these are things that religion has tools for that we need to access in a more healthy way without having to force truth claims onto you, which a lot of Mormons just really can't do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. Like, um, I get the sense that you can get stuck in just nothingness. I don't know. Just like can't really move on or you just indulge in the deconstruction side of it and then yeah, there's not much there, I guess, to the deconstruction phase can be really fun. Yeah, it can be fun to like listen to all the podcasts and like you're you're it's two in the morning and you're reading about the book of Abraham like that. It's a whole phase. And then eventually that for most people kind of peters out, you know, mm -hmm. where it's not as obsessive as maybe it was a year ago. Right. And that's when you start to think, okay, I, I, I don't want to read another book on polygamy. I've read like six of them. I did the year mm -hmm. polygamy journey with, with Lindsay. Um, and that's when, you know, it gets into the, what do I do now? Like, how, how do I, how do I function? What, what are my core values? What, what are my rituals? What do I do with my family? Um, how do I make sense of these existential fears of like meaninglessness and death? And, and that's, that's a bigger question that I just always want to give more space to, uh, because sometimes we focus so much on the deconstruction side that we don't have enough resources for the reconstruction side. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone that's like, well, I mean, or there's, all of this angst about needing those rituals and needing all of those things, that's just religious um, leftover. Like you've really not deconstructed enough that you think you need all of those things. Um, you can just do a science-based and a community-based society, and that could be way better than religious or myth-based uh, systems. Like maybe you just does that make sense to me? Yeah, no, it's a good question of, of why do we need spirituality at all? And to, and some people just call what I do spicy psychology because it's just good mental health. But the problem with, you know, can't we just do science and just live life and be fine is that um, we know, for example, it's really good for your mental health to sing with other people. Something happens in our brain. We have studies on it. We understand it. And to try to get a bunch of atheists to gather at a specific time to sing is like herding cats. Like it's not done. Even something, you know, easier, like if you ask most atheists, is it a good idea to spend a night to look up at the stars and just experience awe that we're alive and we're, we're flying through space on the space rock and Every atheist you ask will say, yes, that's a really good thing to do. It's, it's, it's part of my life. And then if you try to get atheists to, on April 13th, we're going to meet and we're going to look at the stars and we're going to talk about it. It doesn't happen. It's hard. So the reason why I advocate for spirituality is because there's just so many tools for your brain and for the good life that has been kind of housed under the umbrella of religion and spirituality. So for example, rituals, we know that rituals help to process emotions out of your, out of our body. So if you give, if you tell two groups, one of you is going to win $500 and you actually give someone in the group 
and everybody else is disappointed. You have one group do a ritual, even if you know it's made up, write about your feelings, sprinkle salt on the paper, crinkle it up, throw it over your left shoulder, whatever. They make up a ritual. And then they check in later. And how are you feeling about not winning the money? Oh, I'm totally over it. And you do the same thing with the other group. And they're still in the feeling of, I really could have used that money. I'm really disappointed because they didn't do a ritual to help get their body involved in processing that emotion. And that's just one tiny thing uh, of all the things that are going on in spirituality. So we have science of awe. We know that it makes you happier, more connected, more um, grateful, more willing to be compassionate to others. We know that our brains can be really neurotic. So having a contemplation practice can actually make you a lot happier. We know that rituals can mark values or be used as a rite of passage or be used to process emotion. And so underneath the religious truth claims are actual tools that are helpful for our life, helpful for our brains, give us order and structure and safety and community and meaning and purpose and a rhythm to our life. And all of those things are good. So as a post-Mormon, I want to say, how do I get all of those things without anyone telling me what I have to believe? Because I'm not going to do that ever again. Like, I'm just not. Even if there was truth, I'm never, you know, even if there was one religion that is the true, correct religion, I'm never going to find it. I'm too traumatized by all that. So I want to get the tool that's lying underneath the religions because it's just good for you. It's just good for you. Cool. Yeah, that's, um, I love that. I mean, I love that. I just trying <laughs> to like still man why people kind of have an aversion to this kind of discussion. They're like, you guys just need to move on. And I don't know how to explain it. They just... Yeah. And there, there are some people, though, to your point, there are some people who better intuitively than others um, really build a life where they're just enjoying life. So I, I know some Mormons who they deconstruct and they don't need very much. They, they really just intuitively enjoy life. They intuitively um, maybe just like do their running ritual in the morning and that's that's giving them the connection that they need to themselves and they know that they're going to die and, and they do okay with that psychologically and they just say, I'm just going to live my best life and they do. And so some people intuitively really don't need a lot and that's great for them. I was not one of those people. I needed a little bit more help to put my life together. So for the people who are like, I don't need any of this, that's great you're doing things intuitively that I needed help with to get there. And that's okay. That's good. I love that. So um, can you give me like a little bit of background, like how you got into Mormon discussions to begin with and then like what you're doing now, just that journey of your online persona, I guess. If- oh yeah. So for this one, I'll, I just really have to give a credit to my friend, Bill who um, is one of the few men I've met in my life who not only deconstructed patriarchy and tried to understand it, but also understood that as a man, he had a bigger microphone than most women get. And that there was a reason for that. There's a reason that even most of the post-Mormon podcasters and the leaders in this space are male. And so he actually intentionally, which is the next step of deconstructing patriarchy, it's not even just recognizing 
um, that there's a power imbalance or that there's difference in opportunities, but also trying to balance those scales. And so it's really a testament to Bill that he just reached out online and just said, I, I'd really love some female voices on my platform. Uh, make a podcast, send it to me, see how it goes. So I made a podcast of just by myself, just putting out this kind of content. And the response that I got from most people was um, the response that you get from listening to any history teacher, which is what I was before I had kids, um, is it needs to be a conversation because I drone on and on and on and I get a little bit dry, which is true. It, it just is. And so we had this combination of, of Bill really wanting to highlight female voices in his life, voices that he respected, people like Jenna um, Spangler and just the wise women in his life and me trying to do that, but realizing I need to be in conversation or else I just start droning on and on. And so we just, just said, let's create something together. Let's do something totally different than what's going on with the rest of the Mormon discussion podcast, because I was in a place I'd been deconstructed for a decade. I don't want to talk about polygamy anymore. Really? <laughs> Can we do the where will you go? What's next? And let's just do that. Let's just do a podcast on what's next. And that was interesting to him. So we started the podcast. It was uh, two years. And um, I really found my voice through that experience. And so I'm just so grateful for, for Bill for doing that. And then the podcast never fully took off in the way that we hoped. Um, as far as validating kind of the, the time and effort I was putting into it. So after two years, um, I said, I think I'm going to try uh, doing my own thing more on social media because these podcasts are two hours long. They take a lot of time. Uh, but if I get on TikTok and do this in short little clips, I'm getting a lot more response. I'm getting people who sign up for coaching and classes. I'm meeting new people. I'm just having a bigger outreach and it's also paying for my time a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So uh, we ended the podcast just on the best of terms. And um, so now I do no nonsense spirituality and I, I have a website and I spend most of my time on, on TikTok producing content for this kind of space. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's how mine started too. Is he had like a call for women's voices? Did you start yeah. around that same time, or I felt like yeah. yours was already going well before that, though. But maybe uh, I did. It was too. around that time. It was around that time. I think that was almost two years ago. Maybe, maybe he did it a couple times. Maybe you know, put it out there. But I just, it was that. Yeah, it was just, it was just Bill realizing that he wanted more female voices and allowed me the time to develop my own voice because I wouldn't be on social media now if I hadn't practiced with Bill saying what I wanted to say and finding the words for it. And so yeah. it was really an invaluable experience for me, even though the podcast never fully took off because there's no, it's a lot more fun to just be on either side where you know, the other side is really stupid or look at, look at what Mormons believe. It's so ridiculous. Like that side can be a lot more fun. It makes a lot more money. You get a lot of more <laughs> righteous anger. You get to get on your high horse. My podcast didn't have any of that. It was like, let's talk about existential fears. And like, it's more it just like something I should do, but I'm not going to spend the time doing. <laughs> yes. And so it was just a tougher sell, I think, and uh, never, never really got off the ground in the way that, that we had hoped, but I'm proud of the content that I produced. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, 
I feel like a lot of my questions that I had for you were more about um, that, but I guess you can, about your podcast. I still kind of want to go over them. Um, I guess we can still talk about, because, I mean, the Almost Awakened episodes are still there for anybody to watch. Yeah, they're so. still there. I still yeah. refer people if someone has a question about something, I'll often give my own podcast about it. Yeah. So um, how long were your episodes and how often were you releasing episodes when you were doing that? We did it once a week, Tuesday, and they were about two hours. So they were pretty hefty. And uh, sometimes we, we, I, I did a lot of cold call emails to try to get um, people in this space. And we were really lucky that because Bill had um, this Mormon discussions platform, that's quite significant. We were able to get on some big guests. So for example, Nick Jenkel, who's the author of the spiritual atheist or Lisa Miller, who's the author of the awakened brain. Um, and we, which, which are two pretty big, uh, voices, you know, in the current discussion of, of spirituality and, and others, Bart Campolo from the Humanize Me podcast. And so we were able to get some pretty big guests considering how small a podcast we were on, just being able to use that warmer discussion platform. And uh, so, you know, we, we had guests anytime that we can. And then we also both kind of brought in material of, of things to talk about or things to discuss. Um, Bill is much more... Uh, like a great conversation guy where he would watch a movie and just want to talk about it on the fly. And my, my, my um, personality is a little bit more of a teacher. So the content that I brought was like section one. <laughs> I don't know. Like I had, I had organized notes of like some concept that I wanted to, to, to teach and understand. And Bill was just so great at just going along on the ride with me. Um, and so, yeah, some of our content is just talking, some of it is me kind of taking on a principle and us trying to dig into it. And then sometimes we had guests. Okay. Um, one of the questions I've asked some people is like, what is something that you believe that might surprise a Latter-day Saint? Like I was thinking along mm. the lines of something that you actually think is quite positive about the church that they might be surprised about. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> two things come to mind. One, uh, I still really love how Mormonism does Eve, which uh, Eve as the hero instead of Eve as the villain. I think there's still something really beautiful about that um, in the Christian conversation, uh, especially when you look at how Eve became, you know, started off as the hero and you have the divine feminine who's always kind of moving things forward, which makes sense. Whenever I talk to women, they always seem to be kind of pulling their husbands to kind of like the next level. It makes sense to me. Um, and there's still something really beautiful about that. Another thing that would surprise people is that even though I'm, I'm pretty solid in my atheism at this point, if, if there was a space where I could go back as an atheist, I would still go sometimes not, I wouldn't go every week, but I, I have, je I'm jealous sometimes and I have holy envy for something like secular Judaism. So mm -hmm. I'm jealous that in New York city, for example, it's not uncommon at all to have a rabbi who's an atheist who just tries to keep the culture alive, the language, the message, uh, the food, the the morality, the 
the rituals and they keep it all together and they do it from this completely science friendly, friendly atheist stance and still use scripture, just like you would a book like Harry Potter, like let's read about this and talk about this principle. And there's something about that, that I have envy for uh, Judaism leads the space in its ability to do that as one of our oldest religions. And they also went through a lot. And so they had to let go of a lot of truth claims along the way. Certainly after the Holocaust, there was a big shift within that community of just maybe there isn't a God because that was so awful. Um, but we want to hold on to, you know, we're a people, we have a history. So if Mormonism could do something like that, if it could have the breadth where I could openly and actively be an atheist, but still participate in some of the communal aspects, I actually would. There are times not that on I'm- on the sideline either, right? Like, I, Yeah, not on, not on they, the sideline, because the rabbi they're teaches- happy. Like, They're happy to let you come and have- Yeah. Come, and they're just waiting. Yeah, they for say you they're happy to come, behind. but like well, by the time- by the time I was right. right. And by the time I was like at the end of my church going um, experience, I wasn't allowed to have a calling. I wasn't allowed to pray. Um, I had, I got a lot of heat when I was, I, I taught seminary for a little bit and um, I had a lot of pushback from that. So yeah, I could go, but like I was pretty muzzled by that point, but I, I have a lot of envy for those, for those kind of secular rabbi, Jews that can still participate in the community and highlight what is still good and beautiful about it, um, but not have to believe things that they just can't believe. And if Mormonism could do that, I would go from time to time. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you reconcile, like, I see, so you have this envy for the rituals that are um, being preserved. And then I, you mentioned, um, you were mentioning the patriarchy and how that uh, stifles women or we have that tradition of that as well. And I can't see the difference between like, I'm sure that there are rituals and practices within Judaism that are equal to patriarchy, right? Like, so that's the thing that's being kept alive. There's a lot of, like, I don't know, how do you, um, how do you reconcile that belief that there's this bad patriarchy but then wanting to keep alive these rituals over here that mm. are definitely intertwined. Yeah, that's that's I mean, a really that's a deep that's a deep question and certainly there's going to be a conflict. So if I if I were a secular Jew and the the bar mitzvah was getting a lot more attention than the bot mitzvah which is for girls, then yeah, I would you know, I would have a problem with that and I'd have things to say about that. But the things in the thing about, you know, being a secular Jew is that you have the space to you're not going to get excommunicated. You can, within that system, say, I know there's a history where the bar mitzvah is more important than the bat mitzvah, but I'm, for my own children, going to treat these as both equally worthy of, you know, of each other and, and of our time and attention. So there'd be space there to uh, be a little bit more equality-based but still be within the community and the point where in the community may change, you know, didn't, it wasn't as big of a thing 50 years ago for there to be bat mitzvahs at all. And now I see parents be able to make it as big of a deal as a bar mitzvah. And so that actually changes the community in some way. It changes the story. It's, 
because the thing about Judaism is it's a 5,000 year at least conversation. So if the conversation is talking about, hey, we've really put a lot more emphasis on our boys and girls. We used to just not even educate our girls at all. Well, then they're continuing the conversation. And a lot of that conversation includes how can we make this religion um, better for women and a better place for women. And then the, the, the conversation is continuing. And that's what makes uh, something like Judaism so beautiful. And, and maybe why it's really been the only religion to do this successfully is because embedded in that religion is that this is a conversation. So they just have not even just the Bible, but just expanded from that. They just are a religion and a people that value conversation. And because of that, they change and they shift mm -hmm. and they can do things. So that just gives you a little bit of space to be able to exist and, and change things and also be a part of a bigger communal chain. It's really cool. Feminism doesn't have anything like value in conversation, right? We are very top down. And even though revelation sometimes even happens bottom up because, you know, we have concerns happening on the ground and then it goes up to the 12, the, the change is really happening top down. And these men are a hundred years old. And so it's, it's slow, it's late, it's be obedient well, until we tell you that you I can do this. And then I learned about surveys and I found out, oh, so it is kind of, I know up. a but it's, I know a little well, bit about the surveys. I will tell you though that down, though, for sure. the reality of it is top down because I know the people who do the surveys and I know the people who um, give presentations on here is the information of the survey. And the majority of the time, nothing happens mm -hmm. <laughs> in the sense that it, it was a meeting and they got some information and it's left on the table and it's really never discussed again. And so there's, there's, there can be grumbling within the kind of survey department that, Hey, we're showing that this thing or this pilot program, I, I really love to learn the church is always running various pilot programs. You have to be really in the underground world of Mormonism and in some pretty exclusive Facebook groups to, to know what they all are. But the church is running pilot programs all the time to see what's working and see what's not. And still it doesn't really matter because if the 12 just don't feel like the, it's a good thing, it just doesn't matter. So they're not, even though it's happening, they're not as um, important as you would hope that they would be. Well, I guess it's more like this. I think I came to this realization when I was in a presidency, like I thought, Oh, you pray about it and you get direction and inspiration. Mm -hmm. And then you make these decisions. And then I found out, no, the Bishop knows certain things about certain people and ends up putting, and maybe it was just the Bishop I served under. Like maybe yeah. it was just that. Um, you saw that there was like more manager. practical things yes. going on than, than yes. revelation. Yeah. Yes. And there, and there is, and there is that, but the, the surveys and all the data out there isn't um, given priority in those kind of practical conversations with the Q15 sure. um, as, as much as you would hope. And Fiona Givens has talked about this where she called them out once because everything in the Q15 is seniority, right? And so mm -hmm. um, 
when they get their little snack because it's three o'clock, they actually give them their snack according to seniority. When the meeting is done, they like leave the, the room. In like they leave the room according visiting. to seniority. And so if you, it's essentially, you know, it's 15 people, but only two or three are really talking because they're the seniors. And then everyone else is, is just doesn't really have a voice. We saw this with Dieter Uchtdorf too, that, you know, Publicly, he was like, it's great that I'm not, you know, second counselor anymore. And privately, we know that he was hurt by that. Like he was kind of fired because he's not the same as everybody else. So anyway, that's 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 its whole world up there. But you would think that Wouldn't these are 15. Would you love on the wall, though? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I would. Um, and so you'd think that, oh, these are 15 men who are looking at this survey data and pilot data and really discussing this and having a lively discussion. And um, from what I know from Fiona Givens being a part of some of these conversations is that, no, it's, it's 14 yes men to one senior. And everything is they're reminded every 30 seconds of where they are on that totem pole and so it's not it's not a board of 15 people it's 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 Dallin Oaks and Russell Nelson and everybody else um is not the senior and doesn't have the power to really do anything else mm -hmm. I I look at it though and I think that's why it survived you actually pr produced a TikTok that kind of reminded me of it, like without the myth in the middle and actually taking it seriously and believing it and, and staying true to it. Like, I don't think you get to just willy nilly change things um, around that without it dissolving and then not mm -hmm. being a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, religions definitely change slow, but they also are there to change for the tomorrow because they clearly have changed since like yeah. the Mormonism of today is not anywhere near the Mormonism of Joseph Smith's time. That's what I learned when I was going through yeah. church history too. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't you're know. right though. If, if we were to make it more democratic in some way, it, just um, like the United it, would, States. it would lose what it is, which is, which is what people are drawn to. We are the, we are the true church mm -hmm. and, um, and just that surety, like we are the ones getting revelation. It's top down, be obedient. And that feels very safe for people who are wanting some surety because, mm -hmm. because we want that. We, we want to know, we want to know what's going on. We want to be mm -hmm. sure we want to be given a path. We want to be given a checklist. And so when they give it to us at some level, even, even though it can be toxic in a thousand ways, at some level, it's, it's giving us a psychological drug that we want. And so you're right. If we were to change Mormonism to make it healthy, I think it would also go away. Well, okay. That's a good segue into another question. So that, that true belief that like, this is the true church. Um, I don't, I don't know that you can like force yourself <clears throat> to believe that. Right. Uh, Jordan Peterson has this phrase that you can act like you believe something. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it, is there any part of you, like what, like, do you think, is there any part of you that thinks that you should still be like a fully practicing Latter-day Saint? Like on a scale of zero to a hundred, zero being like, hello, <laughs> hundred being absolutely, yeah, I should be there. Like where on that scale would you fall that like you ever doubt that you should be still practicing Latter-day Saint, but in a, yeah. not in a, I'm going to change the church to be what I think, but actually like, you know what, I'm going to, 
submit to the authority. I don't know how to even explain what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but to this, be like a true Latter-day Saint. Yeah, this is a really good, you have really good questions. Sometimes, you know, it takes, like sometimes it'll take you a second to get the words, but the actual concept of your questions are, are very philosophical. I just want to say that. So um, now I just forgot where I was going. Oh, people who say. So here's where I differ from some atheists. So some atheists will be like, well, it's not true. So everyone should leave because it's not true. And if people suffer because it's not true, sorry, it's not true. And if people kill themselves because they can't, withstand nihilism after leaving religion, then sorry, who cares? It's not true. And I think that that's just as callous as what you get from religion where it's like, this is true. So you're going to hell. And it's like, well, I don't know if we have to be like that. So for me, I do have a little bit more nuanced of an answer than it's not true. So you should leave it. And one example would be my brother. So my brother uh, has been a heroin addict since he, he was a heroin addict at 14 or 15 and been a heroin addict for most of the, for, for his kind of young adult life. And uh, as he was getting sober, kind of his sobriety and finding Jesus and religion was interlinked and which is not uncommon when you're a place in that much chaos, uh, order, um, is really, really helpful psychologically and really helpful for your sobriety. So I have never talked about my faith journey with my brother because there's a part of me that says, if you have a faith crisis, statistically, it is a threat to your sobriety and a threat to your life. And he's a father now and he has three. I don't know if a faith crisis is actually going to be a good thing for you. And this is someone who's very, very nuanced, right? So he's very nuanced. He's doing as best he can his, his own kind of Mormonism in the most healthy way he can within the system. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's wrong for me to say, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to, to lose your sobriety. I don't want you to suffer. I don't want these kids to grow up without a father. If Mormonism was a part of your psychological ordering that helped you to get sober, I don't want to be the asshole to take that away. Mm -hmm. So there's like that aspect. And there's also people who, and, and I shifted on this because when I was in my angry phase, I was like, burn it to the ground, right? Because that just felt really good. And then some a friend of mine left or lost his belief and had a suicide attempt. And it just took me back that like, oh, this isn't fun for a lot of people. There's a reason that religion exists. It, it gives us a, love, a lot psychologically. So if my goal is I want people to suffer less, for some people that's going to be leave the church and let's reconstruct and rebuild because that is going to be so much better. But for some people, especially if you have a high psychological need for closure, which is what uh, fundamentalists tend towards, their brains actually are different. They have a higher psychological need for order in order to function. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of those people that, that, that need that order either psychologically or because of sobriety or, um, or, or, or whatever it is, and you want to try to make the healthiest kind of Mormonism that you can within the system, I want to help you do that too. Let's find some strands of Mormonism that help you to give you permission to do 
as healthy of a Mormonism as you can within this structure that is serving you. Because if my goal is I don't want people to suffer, then I'm not just going to pull people out of Mormonism, throw them into nihilism and have them commit suicide. I, I don't want that either. Mm -hmm. So it's not all about truth. Some of it, you also have to factor in um, suffering for me, for me personally, for that question. Um, what because about for I, you personally? Like, do you feel like there's any part of you that doubts like that's where you should be? For me personally, no, just because I, I spent so much time and, and made a career out of what was good in religion, what is good psychologically, what is good for children. I, I really had the privilege of being able to tackle those questions so in depth and actually make an education out of it that everything that is good in religion, I have recreated in my life more authentically in a way that I just could never go back. I could never go back to getting this tool, but having to contort myself and be an authentic and be in a community where I couldn't fully be myself when I'm getting that tool while being fully authentic with people who really see and love me with this community that I've built with. So for me, um, being able to rebuild all the tools of religion in my own life in an authentic way, uh, no, it, it, I, I just could never see myself going back. But I, for the people who I feel like need it, like my brother, I want Mormonism to get healthier for them because maybe I, maybe it's not the best thing for them to leave. Cause I don't, I don't want them to suffer. I don't, it's like the Christians don't care that people are suffering because this is the way it is. And the atheists sometimes don't care that people are suffering in nihilism because this is the way it is. And I want to, I want to find a space in between them that says, if we care about suffering, let's make religion better for the people who are in it. And let's make outside of religion better for the people who are in that. And I, I so I want to play in both spaces still. Hmm. And you don't think there's anything that would ever change your mind? No, not at this, not, not particularly. No, not I, I just know that. so much. I just, I spent, my God, I spent a decade understanding Mormonism. And then I spent a decade studying spirituality and religion and the, and the brain on religion and uh, I just, I just know too much about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I don't want to say that I that I couldn't change my mind because I do. With new information, I I really try to, especially because my ego is not attached to any kind of identity around truth. <clears throat> I don't even think we're interacting with ultimate reality at all. So I don't have an ego wrapped around being an atheist. If if there were. Um, if there was new information, I would change my mind. I'd be happy to. There are some things that I wish were true. You know, I wish I wish this thing were true, um, that if there were some evidence, I would just I would jump on board. But I just I spent two decades studying this. Like, I can't believe it. If it's not there. Well, there's seminary teachers that spend two decades um, learning about the gospel and never think they're going to leave either, right? right? My my thing is, like, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I don't hear you saying you'll never change your mind. You just, you know of no information that would change your mind at this point. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I, I scraped the bottom of the barrel. If there's things that I don't understand or know about Mormonism, 
I am more than willing to sit with with anyone who wants to take me through that. But um, at, <laughs> at this point, I'm not getting a lot of new information. Yeah. The, well, generally, what bugs you the most about Mormonism? <sighs> it doesn't have to be generally. It can be specifically. <laughs> yeah, I would say, and this is just going to be personal to the work that I do. I would say what it does to women bothers me the most because there's some evidence that shows that for children, uh, a highly ordered and structured moral lessons community, uh, adults other than your parents teaching you to be a good person, even if Mormonism isn't true, there's some evidence that shows that that can be psychologically helpful for children. It gives, it gives them a nest to grow up in and, and that that's, that can be healthy. And for men, there's some evidence that shows that uh, if you're in a society where the only place where you can talk about being a father, talk about being a husband, where you can cry, where you can be emotional, where you can sh just show outright kindness if that's the only place in society where that's okay then you know it can hurt men sometimes to leave mormonism more than it hurts women to leave because they can't replace socially what mormonism gave them we saw this with covid after covid the women had a break from church and could fill their own cups and were leaving Mormonism. And the men were saying, I really miss it because there's nothing in my life that has replaced sitting in a circle elders quorum. And there's some truth to that. Mm. So for me, it's, it's really just the now thousands of stories that I carry of, of women and what Mormonism does to women and not just, not just polygamy and not just doctrine, but what happens is, um, you have to build a healthy ego in order to be a full person where these are my preferences and this is the person that I am and this is my voice and this is how I like to do leadership things and these are my dreams and these are my goals. And at a very young age as Mormon women, we don't get that opportunity. When we're in young women's, we are making lists of what we want our future husband to be and what our what our marriage dress is gonna our wedding dress is gonna be like. And we from a young age learn that there's a man between us and God and to be quiet and to smile. And if a boy asks you to dance when you're 14, be aware of his feelings and say yes. And it's just at every level, it's embedded to serve others. And because of that, women don't ever get to fully develop as a person. And then they try to be more spiritual and they go to these, you know, men for either scripture or for, um, or even like yoga, you know, man bun men, and they're getting advice that's for men. And they never even got to finish being a person. And What's really sad is that almost every Mormon woman that I have as a client, we have to give her permission that the most spiritual thing that she can do right now is finish growing up to when you order pizza for your family, have you ever ordered the pizza that you like, or did you just automatically order what your family likes? Do you know what you have to say? Do you have a voice? Do you allow yourself to take up space? Do you allow your body to take up space? 
do you know and they never get to finish that journey and then all of our stuff around spirituality whether it be scripture or whether it be kind of the new age space if it's male dominated you get these guys saying well you got to get up at 5 a.m and you got to take an ice bath and then you got to meditate for two hours and it's like I have children. What do you mean? Like that doesn't even map onto my life. And so there's just so little for women to develop as a person and also see spiritual paths that fit them in their lives as women, because it's all male dominated and you just internalize that you're less than in some way, or you're not spiritual at all, or all the things that women internalize about themselves without even knowing that they've internalized it. And just seeing that what happens to women in Mormonism is the thing that hurts me the most because it's what I see in my clients the most is that this woman uh, started contorting herself at four years old and she doesn't even know who she is really. And nobody's given her permission to be a person and Mormonism takes that from women. And so the benefits that men get from Mormonism, and there is some evidence that shows that they do, is on the backs of women who never got to be people. And that bugs the shit out of me. Hmm. Yes, that would. <laughs> so that's what bugs you about Mormonism. And then what do you like most about it? And I think you'd probably, I don't know. I won't say what you would say. Go ahead. Yeah. I feel like we've talked most... about this a little bit already, so. Yeah, I would say the most interesting strand of Mormonism is this, um, it's what's called panentheism. And the weirdest thing that I've ever experienced in Mormonism is that there's some conversations happening, for example, at the Society for Mormon Philosophy and Theology that sound very much like a Sam Harris consciousness panpsychism conversation happening very much outside of Mormonism. And this idea that kind of like matter is alive and, and that God didn't create the universe, but God is a part of the universe, didn't create the rules of the universe, but is a part of the universe and is helping us along in this kind of um, connection and, and growth. And this idea of salvation not being individual but salvation being communal and that it's like god didn't create the rules of the universe so he can't be kind of uh blamed for the problem of evil because he's just a part of the universe that is a very interesting philosophical idea it's one of the most beautiful things about mormonism and something that comes up in very advanced theological kind of conversations and podcasts that I see, especially with open and relational theology, where maybe did God didn't create things. Maybe God is kind of the electricity running through everything. Mm -hmm. um, and Joseph Smith's had some really interesting philosophical ideas. He was trying to integrate science and philosophy and Mormonism. He had a philosophical mind. Was he you know, a sexual deviant and all the things, fine. But he had a philosophical mind. And there are things that he was trying to develop, especially in the King Follett discourse, that I have seen in today podcasts and conversations on consciousness or on God or, or on theology. And I'm like, you know, I'll be listening to something. This happens all the time. I'll be listening to something and think, oh, Joseph Smith kind of had an idea like that. And that's interesting. 
that's interesting. That still is interesting to me um, because Mormonism has a much easier job with the problem of evil. They have this, this philosophical strand with, with the Pratt brothers and with Joseph Smith's last sermons and it's lost now. And something I had to mourn is that um, there was something really beautiful and interesting about Mormonism. There was something about uh God being communal and God being a part of the universe rather than the creator of the universe and, and salvation being communal, meaning if we're going to get there, we're going to get there together and no, you know, we're all going to be sealed to each other. There's something about that. That's, that's really beautiful. Um, now, is that the way it is now? No, that strand of Mormonism has entirely been, um, rooted out and excommunicated out. Let's be honest with, with some of the September 6th and, and the fallout from the September 6th. So, so there Funny are how those ideas survive though, right? My the dad. ideas are still there. I would say that there's no one in the younger. So my fear is that, you know, Terrell Givens keeps some of those strands alive. Certainly some of his books talk about it. Um, there's even with Terrell Givens, the belief that, you know, the atonement wasn't, wasn't really because of the fall because we have a different view of the fall it's actually a much more beautiful atonement theory and you have richard bushman doing some of that but once those guys die because they're getting pretty old now they're all retired now who and we have some you know we have some older apostles you know qb brown eugene england you know we have books of mormonisms who kept these strands alive but once they die there's no one left who's continuing that strand of Mormonism. Even Sunstone is a different thing than it used to be. You know, Sunstone used to be the place to have these conversations. And it, uh, you know, Dallin H. Oak said, don't go to symposiums. And that side of Sunstone died out. And, and then Lindsay took it over and now it's in a new direction. So that strand of Mormonism to me, I had to be honest with myself that, that it died and I had to mourn that. And that Mormonism is something different now and it's not some of these things and that there's no voice anymore who's really going to things on terrorize mm -hmm. well the, the reason i i mentioned that is that's not a new idea to me my i remember my dad talking to me in high school and explaining that he wondered if you know everything had like a conscience basically yeah like even the rocks and everything like that and i, I think he was talking about somebody else's idea like they had a dream or they had like a near-death experience and they experienced this in that near-death experience or whatever. I mean, never. But never even like, even like Harley Pratt. Go yeah. ahead. Well, just, I never, he never alluded or never thought that he didn't think that God didn't actually have a body of flesh and bones or anything like that. But just that he was, the laws of the universe were higher than God. That idea mm -hmm. was definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think most Mormons would believe that though, wouldn't they? I don't think that's a too far out idea. Uh, I see it that idea is evil. being gone. Evil. It does solve the problem of evil. I, I would say most Mormons now would be uncomfortable with that idea because really? we, we took in so we don't much talk about it a lot. That's for sure. We don't, we don't talk about it. So it's like Mormons wouldn't have an opinion on it anyway. And the Mormons who do are Mormons who study. So they'd probably be more out than in anyway, which is kind of just how these conversations go sometimes. But if you were to really like peg down a Mormon, I think we lost, we lost 
Eve being the hero a little bit. We lost the atonement and how it was different because Joseph Smith didn't talk about the atonement for almost his whole life. Um, it just wasn't, it, it was just different for us. It, it wasn't a, um, we're going to wash your sins away. And I have been to every, my oldest was baptized. I, I've been to every baptism that I've been to. We've taken on this Christian language where God is the creator and God is in control of everything. And baptism is to wash away sins, which is like they're eight, but like, okay. And we don't even have original sin mm -hmm. whatever. And so even though, even though you can point to doctrine that shows that it's still there and an article of faith and a, a King Follett and whatever, none of that has been canonized. None of that gets into manuals. And we took on, Christian language, some of it on purpose because we wanted to be seen as Christian and we wanted to integrate into America and we wanted to not be seen as Mormon. We wanted to be seen as Christian. So some of that we did on purpose. We wanted to take on um, some of that in order to, to integrate into American society and not be a weird, different thing. And then some of it we just lost as this obedience narrative comes up that we didn't really have before. You know, Joseph Smith was not about that life. You know, if he walked into one of our churches today, 100% he would either get excommunicated or he would leave and start a new church because he did not like being told what to believe. He was he like various statements that shows he's not about that. And now it's a really, we have all this Christian fundamentalist language and then we have this obedience narrative that really wasn't a part of, of early Mormonism. You had a lot more space. Uh, then. And so I just see that strand as being lost, even though you can point to scriptures, the reality of the rhetoric on the pulpit. I've never seen anything like panentheism or panpsychism or, or um, salvation is communal or how the fall and atonement are different. We took on Christian language for all of that, even despite our doctrine sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So I'm tempted to play your TikTok um, that was where's deconstruction going and mm. like embed it somewhere in here when I actually produce it. it would that be okay? <laughs> That's okay. I don't even remember. I don't remember what this one is. Uh, I, you, you were just, you were talking just about how maybe we're wired for cults. That's a phrase that stuck out that we're wired for cults. So then it's yeah. like, okay, we're wired for cults. So we just lean into it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, or don't lean into it, or yeah, or just be aware that we're yeah, I, yeah. I, I remember this. I remember this TikTok now. So it's 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 a problem. So we are wired for cults. We are wired to um, we are wired to listen to people who show signs of competence, right? So we are we are prone to look at someone like a Trump character, and the confidence kind of tells our brain this person is competent we should listen to them and we should follow them we do have that in our brains and we have various cognitive biases we are we are wired for cults we are wired to want to be sure about things we're wired to want to have an in and out group um, we're wired towards simplicity rather than complexity we're wired really for religion which is why we've always been religious and for people who are saying oh i'm not a religion now you know, we can, we can leave organized religion, but yet you're still usually going to have like a prophet in your life who, oh, I really, you know, I follow what this guy says, or you're going to have, 
you know, people end up in all kinds of new age cults or um, they'll jump from Mormonism straight into horoscope land where they look at the clock and it says 1111 or angel numbers. And that means that the universe is telling me that I'm on the right path. And it's like, well, that's like even more absurd sometimes than Mormonism, but we are wired for that behavior. And so you're right. What do we do with that? And the, the voice that, that, um, resonates with me the most on this is this idea that we all cult, but can we do this in the most healthy way possible? So for example, you can join, um, you can join, you know, really specific cults like the mother God cults that, you know, the documentary that everybody just watched, or you could say, I'm going to be a part of CrossFit and in some ways, you know, it's an organization, so you can rate it on the bite model of cults. And actually, it's on the lower end, because if I leave CrossFit and I said I'm a yogi now, they're going to say, OK, good for you. And like they may think that you're missing it, you know, or whatever, but they're not going to you know, shun you. If they see you in the store, they're going to come talk to you. They're not going to shun you, right, if you have a CrossFit community. And so a lot of this is, okay, if we're wired for cults and we are communal creatures and we're social creatures, then how can I know this about my own brain and um, actually work it into my system to make sure that I'm on the healthiest end of cults, which means there are voices that I'm going to trust more than other voices, that's just how human brains work. And so, okay, I know that about my brain. What can I do to make sure that I don't replace Russell and Nelson with another prophet and just become another sheep of whatever that is? Mm-hmm. So the way, to, the way that I do that is, okay, I really want to put voices in my ear of people who are unafraid to call out their own camp. Because that means this is someone who's a little bit more trustworthy and not a cult leader because they will call out their own group. They will call Mm -hmm. out their own camp. That's a green flag for me. Who are the voices in this political conversation who will call out their own camp if needed? Okay, those are the people I want to listen to. So I'm still listening to people like I still prefer this voice over this voice, but there's a reason why. And I'm keeping it healthy by looking for these green flags. And I do still have a spiritual community, but I I want these green flag things of like um, how money is formed and how it's led and how anyway. And so I think what we have to do is just realize that a lot of this culting and religious behavior is just human brain behavior. How can we be aware of it so that we can stay on the healthy end of that and still get the benefits of of everything that you get by being in community with other people and learning from voices who are wiser than you, there are benefits there. Like Mm -hmm. you can live in a cave and not be in a cult and not be in a community. And there's going to be a cost to that. Right. And I I don't want to pay that cost. So I just want to stay on the healthiest end of kind of the bite model of, of culting behavior. Yeah. When you were saying that you, you trust voices that will call out their own tribe. I, I find this to be, I, there's, I agree, but then there's part of me that's like, well, maybe they're just calling out their own side for points from people on the other side to think they're legitimate. Like this, like is, 
just con being a contrarian alone will gather a lot of um, will gather a lot of views and clicks, and there's some motivation to do that. And so it makes you wonder if someone really is concerned about that. And then does does that make sense? I guess what I'm yeah that that skepticism tool can go as far as you want it to go <laughs> because. Um, even when sh someone is showing green flag signs, there's always that chance that, I mean, there's how many spiritual yogi teachers have we had that had all these green flags and then behind closed doors, they were, you know, having sex mm -hmm. with all the young females in their yoga, whatever mm -hmm. it was, but, you know, publicly they had all these, these really green flags that you would see in spirituality. So there's no kind of perfect checklist I can give you of like, right. this is a person who is kind of worth listening, but we can at least as best we can say, here are a pretty big list of red flags of, of what this behavior kind of lends to. Here's a list of some green flags. People can lie and, and look like green flags, but at least it gives you something. It, mm -hmm. You know, because with anything, you can use your skeptic tool until you get to essentially what's called analysis paralysis, where I've, <laughs> I've used my skepticism tool so much that I actually can't move now. And I actually can't make a decision because all I have is the tool of skepticism. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be aware that that's a dead end too, because then you won't be able to make a choice and you'll just n have no way to get out of bed because you only have the tool of skepticism. So, so I don't, I, I will never, ever the rest of my life let go of my tool of skepticism but i want other tools too mm -hmm. and they're not going to be perfect but the more tools i have the better chance i'm going to have of getting the benefits of of being in community the benefits of spirituality and staying away from the culty toxic side and that's the yeah. best that we could do maybe mm -hmm. yeah that's that's good i like that um I wanted to touch on in that TikTok, you also talked about political religions and, um, you know, you were talking about how the secular world doesn't have, you know, Hey, let's gather together and sing. But then you do see people going to protests and they're chanting at rallies and, and they're totally getting that religious, um, check Mark ticked off there as far as gathering yeah. together. So that's, mm -hmm. that's super interesting. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, last questions here when do you think like progressive politics go too far i'm just curious what your mm. thoughts are on that yeah so this is a time where i'm gonna call out my own cap here <laughs> uh so i've i've always kind of been a little bit more left-leaning that's just how my core values line up with the the political spectrum and so as i do this i'm gonna turn off a lot of people who are gonna think oh because she uses that language or calls out that thing. She's probably conservative. I just want everyone to know I've always been a little bit more left-leaning just with my political values. So for political religions, this was the fear of Nietzsche, that when we lose religion, when we lose religion, we are going to create religion out of our politics. And the problem with that is that with religious with with a religion, you at least get someone like Jesus or Buddha who has some really beautiful things embedded in the system that can help pull back the fundamentalism, help pull back 
some of these things. You at least get a Jesus character. You at least have to, at some point, read the Sermon on the Mount. In a political religion, you don't have that. You don't have a Jesus. You don't have any way to pull back from the identity of, of that particular religion or uh, making a crusade out of whatever you want to make a crusade of. There's no Jesus character to pull you back. And so in some ways, political religions can be worse than organized religions. And this was Nietzsche's fear. And so we're seeing some of that in how we're leaving organized religion and going into political religions. We know that for Black Lives Matter, for a lot of the kids, Gen Z, this was less about actually caring about uh, racial inequality. And it was more about the chanting and the singing. And this is my in-group and this is my out-group and this is the narrative and these are the slogans and this is my identity. And so when it becomes that, then we leave rationality. We leave the ability to actually have political conversations that lead to compromise, that lead to good um, domestic and foreign policy. And so my fear with the left is that if you can never be woke enough, if you're always correcting each other, if you're always virtue signaling, if you're always doing this from a place of identity, if we've lost some rationality by not being able to even say that on some level that men and women have biological differences, if we can't even say that anymore without being called transphobic, if we can't say anymore, for example, if I can't say I'm fully on board and an ally, but I have concerns with transgender sports. If I can't even enter that conversation and say, hey, I just want to understand this better. How, how can we do this in a way um, that that's that's equitable for everyone? If I can't even say that in left spaces without being called transphobic and canceled, then that's a problem because we've lost the conversation. We've lost rationality. We've lost our ability to actually look at the problem and come up with solutions. Now it's only about identity and who can be the wokest and who can um, have the most intersectional voices and who some of this is even who is the least privileged so that they have the most power at the table and nobody else can talk and I can't even speak because I'm white. And we, it's when it becomes that, it's just an identity. We're not even doing politics anymore. We're doing fundamentalist religion. If I can't ask a question in a, in a left space, you know, in good faith as a person on the left, then that's a problem. Now we're talking about fundamentalist religion. And so I see this happening on the left where, where it's less about the actual issue and more about the slogan, the in-out group, the virtue signaling, um, having the look like you're on the left. You know, there's a there's a certain look, and there's the blue hair, and who can who can use this word the best? And and we're all fighting each other to not get canceled, and we've actually lost sight of having conversations that actually help solve actual political problems and actual domestic problems. And that's and that's when politics becomes religion and it happens on the right. Um, and it's a little bit more obvious on the right because it actually joins up with Christianity. And so it's very obvious that, uh, you know, the, the Christian right 
is a political religion that very openly goes into bed with organized religion in very obvious ways. And I think on the left, it's a little less obvious because, um, you know, it's not going to have the stamp of a particular organized religion, but it can start acting like one. Mm -hmm. And we have to be aware of that. And I try to call that out. And every time I call that out, uh, I would big pushback and be called all kinds of things for yeah, not being woke period. enough. Yeah. I'm just another, I'm, I'm a conservative, a white woman, yeah. Karen. I can't even <laughs> walk into that space anymore without, and I do it knowingly. I, I If mm -hmm. I post something about that, about how this is acting like a religion, then uh, I openly know that, that that's the response that I'm going to get, but I don't want to be the kind of person that is so afraid of a fun, you know, religious people telling me I'm not dogmatic enough. You know, I don't, yeah. I've been there. I don't want to do that anymore. Right. Do you, do you think that um, progressive, I, I think a lot of people think they're safe from like the cult-like things on the progressive side because there's no leader. Do you think that mm. is true in a way? Like they, they know the bite model, they know this, and they, they don't see a Trump figure on the left. And so they are like, I'm, I'm good. I'm in the clear. Yeah, or it's different. Recognize it. Yeah, that's a really good question. So the the left does tend to be more communal. So the so the political values for the right um, are are like loyalty and authority and purity, and the political values on the left uh, oh, are like compassion and justice. Stuff, right? mm -hmm. Well, the five so, on the right they have all of them. It's just that the left takes to them and says we loyalty is not important right yeah. and then also authority is not important so the problem is that the community is the authority so in the sense that if i were to um post something on tiktok that said uh i don't know transgender people shouldn't be in sports like something you know and and that is i'm on the left i've looked at this I think that there's problems and I say something like that. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be one person, a Trump person who would kind of smack me down on the left, but the community is that authority figure. Meaning instead of saying, let's talk about this. Like, what do you, what do you mean by that? And how can we make sure that we make things fair for, for the biological, you know, whatever the conversation is, instead of being able to have that conversation, the community as a whole acts as that authority figure to say, you are now canceled. Everyone is unfollowing you. You can never speak again. <laughs> you can never be trusted again. And you can never run for political office again. And you are done. And in some ways, that is harsher than what you get on the right. Because on the right, you can make mistakes. And you can have a bad tweet. And you can even get some heat for it. And maybe, maybe Ben Shapiro or Matt Walsh will disagree with you but you're not canceled. You keep going, right? I had a bad tweet. You know, it wasn't received well. Uh, I'm still going. And if you have groups like a Facebook group that's more right-leaning, you can say something wrong. You'll get some heat, but you're still allowed in the group. You're allowed to make mistakes on the right. You're allowed to do that. On the left, you have this huge communal response saying you're done now before you can even talk about it. And so the left is much harder on itself. And this is something that, you know, it's not just me talking, it's it's kind of a known thing that the left will eat itself in the way that the right doesn't. 
So the left will eat itself because the community is just continually trying to virtue signal to itself. And so it cancels everybody. And then by the end, everybody's canceled because nobody can say the perfect tweet that has the perfect amount of intersectionality with all groups. Like you just, it's a level of perfection that no human can attain. And then once you're canceled, even someone like JK Rowling, like there's no way to get back. It's like worse than prison. At least with prison, you did your two years, you paid your time, you go back to society. On the left, you have a bad, you have a bad tweet. You lose your job as a professor. You never get a job again. You never speak again. I mean, you are canceled. Hmm. And so I wouldn't say that it's safer because there's no authority. It's like the community acts as a mindless kind of mob mentality. And when you're done, you're out. And there is no way to get back in. It's it's hmm. an excommunication without a trial because it's, it's everyone saying you're done now and then you're really done in a way that doesn't happen on the right. So it's different, but it's there. It's just a different in dynamics. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask the same question. So where do you think conservative politics goes too far? I mean, and it, 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 it depends on the place, but right now in America, it's really this idea of, of getting involved with, with Christianity uh, the concerning thing for me, and again, this is this may be because I'm more of a in the religious world than than the political world. The political world is is a side hobby for me. Um, the last Republican the the last Republican National Convention, there were calls for theocracy. We need to go back to being a Christian nation, and this was heavily applauded. And the fear that I have is that you know we have these founding fathers that really didn't want religion to be in the bed with politics, really tried to make it not that way. We're not believing Christians in the sense that the right likes to claim they are. They're deists at best. They're skeptics. They would be atheists now if they were alive today because of their level of rationality and skepticism. And skepticism. They wouldn't have survived modern day Christianity. They would want no part in it. So the ability of the right to really go into bed with religion um, and, and the, the connection between like Jerry Falwell Christianity and, and Trump right politics, those two, those two things go like really combining forces is pretty terrifying. It's, it's how you really get theocracy and, and, openly at the Republican National Convention, we're calling for it. And that's when you really are going to start to lose things like women's autonomy and women's rights, because that's what religion is going to do. Re religion is going to be very interested in controlling female autonomy. It always has been. Hmm. And so I have concerns about, about an already pro problematic cult, which is kind of Jerry Falwell Christianity, and an already problematic cult of Trumpism, getting into bed together, creating a monster that's bigger than both of them. That's that's pretty terrifying, and it's going to be the worst for for women, I think. Hmm. Well, I cannot put you in a box, Britt, and I think that's great. So I, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I appreciate. Yeah, you asked you. really good questions coming and letting us record something. Um, yeah, so go ahead and, well, I do like to end, is there, 
is there something that you are most proud of that you would want to point people toward? And then I can link it in the notes, like a mm. podcast or a podcast episode, or even if it's just something that if you could convince people to spend time mm. on one thing, what would you? What yeah. Would okay. Do? So if you're, when are you going to release this? I'm going to try to do better, not release it like in three months. This is the only one I have. So <laughs> okay, it's, it's okay. It's just because I had, it's just because I had something come up on Sunday or this upcoming Sunday, but that's going to be too soon. Um, I, I would say really the, the stuff that I've done on highlighting how internalized patriarchy affects your spirituality as, as a woman and how to undo that is really the thing that I'm the most proud of because it's where I've seen the biggest change in like a client or a person or a friend to really dig into kind of all of that. And so um, what I really love to do is like, there's this book, When God Was a Woman or The Blade and the Chalice or Who Cooked the Last Supper that talk about how woman was once God and how God became male and what that did to women and then what religion did to women and then available spiritual paths that you've never thought of. Like going to a girl's group is never in any scripture as spiritual, but it is absolutely a spiritual practice for women and has depth and wisdom that, that men would be shocked to find at some of these kind of girls lunches. And so that whole journey of, of how God became man and what it did to women and how it affected you and, and the spirit, the things that you've never been given permission to call spiritual and how the hero's journey is different than the heroine's journey and what that looks like in our archetypal stories, that whole thing I'm very proud of. Um, so on, on Sunday, this upcoming Sunday for me, not you who's listening, but for me, I'm going to do um, a really big course on all of that, and I'm going to record it, and I'm going to put it on my, on my website. So by the time you're hearing this, there should be a course on my website on that whole journey of when God was woman, how God became man, and how it affects you, and how to undo that. And uh, I'm really proud of the work that I'm doing in that space. I did do a heroine's journey um, podcast with Bill that I'm proud of, but it, that's just one piece of, of the much bigger kind of thing that I'm tackling. And I've just seen women's lives change so dramatically by really putting their experience into context of a bigger story and giving us permission to have spirituality look more like our lives, which never happens if men are the only ones writing scripture. So that I'm really proud of. So by the time you're listening, I will have a um, course on that that you could be able to buy on my website uh, at nononsensespirituality.com. All right. Is the, do you remember the episode that has the piece of it? If I could link that, um, if people yeah, want to watch uh, that episode. Well, you'll have, we'll have to Google it, but it's just Barbie and the heroine's journey. And Bill and I do that. Heroine's journey. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. And I think well, we use the, the Barbie movie is, it, it goes through the, the um, story arc of the heroine's journey. So we use that as kind of our jumping off place. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for yeah. coming on. And um, yeah, I hope people found it useful so <laughs> yeah you asked great questions this was great thanks